Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Levi. Again, one of the pastors here at Freedom Village Church. Welcome. Uh, those of you online, traveling, welcome. The faithful few that are here, welcome. Those that are visiting, welcome. Uh, we, we get an opportunity this morning. I'm super excited. Uh, we get to get into God's word. We believe that God's word, it doesn't return void. That when we open up the scriptures, we're hearing from God, the creator of the universe. Um, so no, no matter where we are in the scriptures, we should come expectant, ready to hear from God. Because we're opening up his word. No matter who's up here speaking. Right, ain't Pastor James. Some of you wish it was. Hey. Some of you come to Freedom Village Church because 11 to 12 times a year the family pastor preaches. Don't laugh. That was a joke. It was a joke. It was a joke. But anyways, we come expecting because it is the word of God. We're back in the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 2. We're up in a fish this morning. In a fish. Left off last week, we learned that we're all runners. We all run from God, just like Jonah. And, and, and just like how it's supposed to be read, it's supposed to be read reflectively, we are Jonah. I'm Jonah. You're Jonah. We tend to run from God's calling on our life. We tend to run from, um, what were the points last week? I don't even remember. We tend to run from, we tend to refuse his calling. Uh, we tend to run, flee from his presence, an intimate relationship with him, and we uh, we tend to live contrary to uh, the profession of faith that we have. Um, yet, God pursued Jonah. Uh, pursued Jonah. Jonah kept going down, down, down. If you remember the language in Jonah chapter 1, he went down to Joppa. He went down into the ship. And you thought, man, he can't go lower. <laughs> he can. He goes down into the sea where he gets swallowed by a fish. Uh, spoilers, that's where we're going today. Um, and I think actually Jonah chapter 2 um, in particular, gets super vegetabled. And what I mean is that it gets kind of romanticized in a certain sense. Like Jonah's like diving into the sea, and as he, as he gets into the sea, he's like, oh, a fish, I'm saved. And then the fish comes, he swallows him, and there's just a whole bunch of space inside this fish. There's an angelic choir that starts singing, and Jonah's pacing around, considering his ways. But the reality is, as we read through Jonah chapter 2, it's a lot darker than that. Uh, it's, it's actually so much darker than that. And what we should imagine is a man desperately clinging to life. He is sure of one thing. He's dead. As he sinks into the storm's waters, everything starts to fade away. The wind fades away. The sailors begin to fade away. The boat fades away. The storm fades away. And then now he... He is welcomed with an intense silence, surrounded by water, which he believes is his watery grave. And so there we are. We're with Jonah alone in the sea, and, and the drowning prophet is there, and we, we have him and his thoughts. And that's Jonah chapter 2. And what we're going to do first is we're going to look at Jonah chapter 1, Verse 17, and we're actually going to camp there for a little bit before we get going this morning. So if you have your Bibles, open up Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. We'll read that together. Uh, you'll notice throughout Jonah chapter, actually the entire book of Jonah, there's a lot of conjunctions, God, and God, but God, then God. And actually, if you, if you went through a study in the whole scriptures about the 
the, the important places where God intervenes in difficult situations, uh, it would be a huge encouragement to you. But we're going to see that a lot here in the book of Jonah. God intervenes. Jonah's trying to run from the presence of God, but he's still there. And God, then God, but God. And, and here it is again. Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. Jonah's cast into the sea by these sailors. He's running from God. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So the Lord appointed or provided. And if you, if you write in your Bibles, I would say underline that or at least consider it in your minds. It's an important word. The Lord provided. The Lord appointed. And we're going to see it again in the book of Jonah later. But then he says a great fish. And let's assume we're reading this for the first time. Let's just assume it. And we come to the point where he says, a great fish. It should cause us to pause and think, what? Well, what type of fish is this? Or how could this be humanly possible that a fish swallows a person? And that person stays in the fish for three days and three nights. It's really interesting because that's what we should be thinking as we're reading. A fish, like he's in the digestive tract of a fish, in the intestines of a fish, the fat and the blubber and the waste. And, and, and really the fish is only mentioned three times and kind of in passing in the book of Jonah. So, so sometimes in our minds we think of Jonah, we think of fish. But the author is not concerned about answering any of those questions. Because God is not concerned about the drama happening inside the belly of the fish. God is concerned about the drama happening inside Jonah's heart. And so the concern of the writer of Jonah is not about how could this be possible. It's about how God pursues a runner. And so that's the main point of the book of Jonah. So he's not concerned with explaining it. The author is totally fine uh, believing and asserting that this is a miracle it don't normally happen. And if you find yourself someday swallowed by an aquatic animal for three days, three nights, just know you're not in control. <laughs> it's not you. And probably if you were ever in that situation, you, you, you'd be, it'd be good for you to pray. <laughs> and Jonah does. Uh, but the story ain't about the fish. Once again, only mentioned three times. Uh, I like to, sometimes when I preach, just give you worthless, useless trivia. The fish mentioned three times. Uh, Jonah and, and the city of Nineveh combined together mentioned 27 times. But the name of God, this is not useless. The name of God mentioned 42 times. Because we said last week, the story of Jonah is ultimately about God. So why study Jonah? Because we want to behold who he is and specifically his mercy together. We're going to behold his mercy so it says here, the Lord appointed a great fish. But then it says, because if you think about it, God could have used any means to get Jonah's attention. Right? So we, we, have, we have this scene of, uh, you know, the sailors tossing over this cargo. It could have been that Jonah could have grabbed onto one of those cargo pieces and then floated off to, to dry land, and he's praying as he's floating. It could have been that God teached Jonah how to swim, or he already knew how to swim, and he's swimming and praying at the same time. It could have been these different things, but he chose a fish. 
Why a fish? And I think there are uh, good reasons for why God chose a fish. It says here that the great fish swallowed Jonah. And that's actually important. Uh, because the phrase in the Old Testament to swallow up is always connected to judgment. So here when a fish is swallowing up Jonah, we should think to ourselves, ah, the judgment of God. But at the same time, the fish is the only thing keeping Jonah alive. <laughs> so so we, have the judge, we have what seems to be the judgment of God, but what also seems to be the salvation of God in the fish. And you think, well, how, how, how does that work together? But actually, we see this in a few places in the Old Testament. And that's why I said at the beginning, actually, I didn't say it at the beginning, I skipped it in my manuscript, but this is severe mercy. Severe mercy. And, and another, way, another way to say it, you could say salvation through judgment. Salvation through judgment. I'm just going to use one example in, actually, I think that's up on the screen, salvation through judgment. Boom. Now we're going to act like, you know, that intense moment. We're going to replay it. Salvation through judgment. Ooh, okay. We're going to look at one place in the Old Testament for this. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 26 through 31. It says this. It's a lot of scripture. Stay with me, please. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. And then here's the transition. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him. If you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul, when you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not, it's almost a story of Jonah right here. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. So as we go through chapter 2 today, uh, let's remember this idea of God, God's salvation coming through judgment. The text continues in verse 17. He says that he was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And this phrase is interesting, obviously. Because of the connection to Christ. Um, but it was actually in the ancient world a common way to express, oh, he's on his way to death. A journey of three days. Maybe an equivalent uh, in our modern vernacular, he's six feet under. He, he's, he's done for. He's a goner. Right? He's on a journey of three days. Just a few examples from, for you from the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 22. It's not up on the screen. I looked up there with hope, but it wasn't there. Genesis chapter 22, Abraham and Isaac go on a journey for three days to Mount Moriah, where Isaac almost dies, but he comes back alive. In Exodus chapter 15, God's people journey into the wilderness, and they don't have water for three days. They're about to die until God miraculously provides water for them. In 2 Kings chapter 20, Hezekiah is about to die, but he prays, and God tells him that he's going to live, and on the third day... He goes up to the temple. 
And then you get to, to um, this will be up on the screen, you get to uh, Jonah's contemporary, Hosea. Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 through 2, it says this. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us, and on the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. So this picture in Jonah that we have, it's, it's helping us connect God's rescue of Jonah from death with how God brings his people from death to life. And in it we're realizing that God did not want Jonah dead, but he wanted to bring Jonah to a place where he could revive his relationship with the Lord, to renew his calling in the Lord, the calling that he's placed on his life. It's salvation through judgment. Salvation through judgment. You also notice in the middle of, I, I believe it's there, middle of verse 17, there's a period. It seems a bit odd, but actually that's a, uh, a I'm a, okay, I'm acting like this came from the top of my head. A commentator said it's, it's actually a pausal clause where as you read through it, you're supposed to pause reflectively and slow down because in chapter 1, what's going on? There's a storm that's getting stronger and stronger. There's these people throwing off cargo. There's this Jonah. He's running, right? There's so much action taking place. And basically how it's supposed to be read is you're here, right, in the story. Now you're here. How is that visual? You're here. Now you're here. There's a focus now. Now it's just Jonah and God in the belly of this fish. And the story is dramatically slowing down in chapter 2. So what question are we looking to answer today? Jonah here experiences the severe mercy of God. So the question we're going to look to answer is, how can we rightly understand and experience his great mercy? Or how do we return to the Lord? How do we seek his mercy and his intimate presence when we're as low as we can go in life? How can we experience his mercy and his grace once again, and I think Jonah helps us on this point. Let's remember we all need God's mercy uh, because we're all runners. We need to consistently go to the cross of Christ daily for forgiveness, for strength, for comfort, for direction. His mercy is not just for those that have come to Christ for the first time, but for those who are in Christ and have been for some time. We need his mercy. So, so we get to chapter 2. Now we're entering into the fish. Jonah chapter 2 verse 1 says this. Then Jonah prayed. There it is. He did it. To the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Now this first point is going to sound obvious, but I think we need it as Jonah needed it. We need this reminder constantly. If we want to seek, maybe you're running today and you want to seek a more intimate relationship with Christ, you need to pray. You need to fall before God. And it might sound obvious, and it's really one of the major themes of Jonah, because if you remember in chapter 1, that's Jonah's problem. Jonah in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, he makes a prayerless decision to run from God. And that prayerless decision leads to God sending a storm over to Jonah. Jonah, what's he doing during the storm? He's down there. He's asleep. He sleep below deck. And he sleep below deck. The pagan sailors say, hey, come up. Call on your God. Pray. 
What does Jonah do? He don't pray. He's still prayerless. He's prayerless there on top of the ship. The, the storm's getting stronger and stronger, and they're, they're crying out to their God, and eventually they cry out to, to the right God, and Jonah's still prayerless. And then he's tossed from the sea, and you think, man, he just can't get lower and lower. When's this guy going to pray? My goodness gracious. And then until he gets to the point where he can do nothing else, he prays. Some of us are on our way there right now. Maybe some of you are there today where you can do nothing else. The good news is when you can do nothing else, you can pray. We find that in the depths of the sea, God's mercy is there. We find that in the depths of the fish, God's mercy is there. And you'll find that in your pits of life, God's mercy is there. We need to pray. And there are some observations of prayer that I think Jonah gives us here. Uh, some pointers here. I don't think this prayer is perfect. But I think that there are some observations of prayer that we can gain from this. And first, Jonah's precise. He has precision. Jonah goes to great lengths to describe his situation and, and what his situation and how his situation is making him feel. He says, out of my distress, out of the belly of Sheol, and Sheol being um, something like a grave, the flood surrounded me, waters closed in over me. And he, he goes even to describe how seaweed's wrapping around his leg, right? He's very descriptive in this prayer. It is a detailed description of Jonah's situation. He isn't casting a general help, right? He is taking time to describe precisely how he's feeling and what his situation really is. He has a precise problem, so he provides a precise prayer. And the truth is, we can be so precise with our worries and so general with our prayers. We can be, we can be talking to our friends, explaining our tough situations. Man, this thing happened and it made me feel like this and this. Oh, oh, woe is me. You know, we can go through all these things. And then we come to God in prayer. It's like, God, give me strength for today. Okay, I'm done. Right? We, we can do that. We can get... Uh, we can get to going through the motions in that sense. But, but here Jonah isn't doing that. And in fact, Jonah is so precise that he's, he's finding precise scriptures that fit his precise situation. And, and I'm only going to use one example of this. But you can literally go verse after verse after verse of scriptures that Jonah has drawn in order to give himself words to pray in his precise situation. I'm going to use uh, Jonah chapter 2, verse 2 here. It says this. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Well, first of all, what we learn here is not only is God there in the fish, but he's listening. He's hearing Jonah. And then let's read Psalm chapter 30, verse 3. Oh, Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. So here we, we're seeing Jonah sample the psalms as he prays. He's sampling from these songs of prayer and uses them to give him words to explain his situation. He has a precise problem. He searches for precise scriptures and prays a precise prayer. Jonah's being precise. Uh, but also, I think what we see here in his prayer is passion. 
I think we see passion. He says here, out of my distress or in my distress, right, there's an emotion there. Out of Sheol I cried. He's crying out to God. You heard my cry. I think, I think Jonah here is showing us to pray with real passion, real emotion. And, I, and I, the reason I bring this up is because I, I'm just considering my own prayer life. I, I can get, how often do our prayers, how often do my prayers become just something we do? And we can fall into this groove of just going through the motions of prayer. And obviously we shouldn't turn our brains off as we pray. But it is to be filled with emotion. You say, well, that's just emotionalism. No, it's a relationship. I was, I was thinking of, um, I was in Alabama these past three and a half weeks. And we, we, we would put the kids down every night about 7.30 to 8 p.m. And, you know, after that time, you know, it's time to fellowship with the family, get together, Let's, let's, you know, play some games. But the NBA Finals were on, so I was in the kitchen with my laptop watching the NBA Finals. Shame on me. Well, the Miami Heat made the NBA Finals. Um, I'm a Miami Heat fan. No one expected the Miami Heat to make the NBA Finals. And we were there getting absolutely crushed by the Denver Nuggets. But that's beside the point. I'm still, okay. <laughs> that's beside the point. But as I'm watching this game, and, and, and the point of this is simply this, we can be so passionate about worldly things, right? And, and as I'm watching the game, and I'm, I'm, I'm watching every single bounce of the basketball, I feel something. Every single shot that's missed, I feel something. Every single shot that's made, I feel something. A lot of times when I'm feeling something, my wife who's in the other room, she's rolling her eyes because she can hear me feel something. <laughs> I'm like, oh, come on, you're, you know, like, make the shot, what are you doing? Uh, which was mostly the emotion because we got destroyed. But we can be so passionate, so emotive about worldly things. And then when we come to Scripture, it's... Lord, give me strength for today. And, and, and it's not bad to have routine, 100%. And sometimes we need to come to prayer and we're not feeling it. We need to do it anyway. But a passionless prayer life, there's something wrong there. There's something wrong there. Nothing wrong with routine, but there is to be passion and emotion in our relationship with God. So I think we see that a bit here as well. Jonah prays with precision. Jonah prays with passion. But he also prays with a posture of thanksgiving. A posture of thanksgiving. We see that in verse 9. Oh, I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will bring sacrifices, will sacrifice to you. Uh, so Jonah's posture here is one of thanksgiving, which would make sense if verse 9 came after verse 10. Verse 10 is, of course, when Jonah's vomited onto dry land. That would make more sense. Verse 9 would be easy after verse 10. How often do we bring thanksgiving to God in the fish? In our pits of life, do we thank the Lord? Do we praise him? There, there's a time for lament, but I don't think lament cancels the need to be thankful for daily provision and especially the provision of salvation that, that he gave us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jonah is thankful in the fish. So Jonah's running. God pursues him. God sends a fish. Now Jonah is silent before the Lord, not because he wanted to get there, but because God put him there. 
because that's what he needed because God loved him. And he's now experiencing the mercy of the Lord, the severe mercy of the Lord to be brought back into intimate relationship once again. And what does Jonah do? He prays. He prays. And if we are to experience God's mercy at the lowest point of our lives, if we're to renew our relationship with God, we need to run to him in prayer. But also, secondly, we need to know that we are, we need to understand that we are depraved. We need to understand that we are depraved. Jonah chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. So he says here, I am driven away from your sight. And then you think to yourself, what was Jonah's goal in chapter 1? To flee from the presence of the Lord. And we learned last week that presence in, in the original language means face. So he saw that to flee from the presence of the Lord was to flee from him relationally. And now in verse 4, we see Jonah says he's been driven from the sight of the Lord. And I think Jonah's starting to realize what it means to flee from the presence of the Lord. What it looks like. It's dark. It's helpless. It's lonely. And it feels hopeless. So Jonah gets to this point in his journey. And I think, I think we can see this at the end of chapter 1 uh, when he's admitting to the sailors, hey, you know what? This storm is not because of you. It's not because of, of, of anything. It's not because God's like this hateful God or anything like that. It's because, it's because of me. And then we get to this point where he's saying, I, I'm driven away from your sight. And I think what we're seeing is he's realizing, maybe slowly and probably not perfectly, because I think by the end of Jonah chapter 2, we see this in Jonah chapter 3 and 4, but there's still a lot of work to be done in Jonah's heart. But I think he's slowly starting to realize his depravity before a holy and righteous God. And of course, depravity just means sinful, corrupt, and wicked. And I want us to think about what it, what it takes for him to come to this, to this realization. It takes him being in a belly of a fish, trapped in a hot, stinky mess and the thought of his life over. Then and only then does he come to understand that the square root of his problems is him. Right? He, he's, he's the issue. He's the problem. And, and really knowing that you're depraved is the realization that I am a sinner this is where my sin has led me. I am depraved. It has led me to the darkest place I could ever be. And um, really, there's no question that Jonah believed he was more righteous than an Nineveh people. And probably believed he was more righteous than the sailors up there. Right? So, 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 I mean, he was a Jew. He was one of God's chosen people, a prophet. He didn't want the Ninevites to receive salvation because he believed they don't deserve it. It's one of the reasons he runs. Jonah believed he was righteous. He believed he was good. And that was part of the problem. So God had to strip him of that. And how does he do that? Again, salvation through judgment, sending the fish, strips him of this self-righteousness that he had. And now he starts to see his wickedness. And he has this understanding. And I just wonder, 
do you and I really understand the depth of our own depravity? The depth and seriousness of our sin. Because until you realize the depth of your own depravity, the depth of my own depravity, until you realize the bad news uh, that your sin causes you to be separated from God, divorced from God, dispelled from his presence, or driven away from his sight, until we see that, we really never understand the good news of the gospel. Uh, So Jonah, finally, he's starting to understand this, that he's deeply sinful. I'm deeply sinful. I... And that's my identity. That's who I am. And then once he sees that, the good news starts to trickle in here in Jonah chapter 2. Verse 6 through 7. Yet, and here's another conjunction, yet God, but God. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. It's so interesting as well. I'm not sure I 100%, you know, I'm I'm ready to know exactly where this is coming from. But this isn't a prayer for deliverance. It's a prayer of deliverance. So so it's not that Jonah is praying that he is delivered. He's he's praying that he has been delivered. I think what we could see from this, a principle here, deliverance from your circumstances is good, but deliverance from your sin is infinitely greater. So Jonah's still in the fish, but it is a prayer of deliverance, not a prayer for it. He is is thanking God, praising God, because he has delivered him in the fish. That intimate relationship is being renewed. The mercy is there in the depths of the sea. And it's true for us as well, uh, because circumstances don't really even matter. You can be in the belly of a fish, totally hopeless, and still be worshiping God because Jesus is everything. He is all you need. So that's why deliverance from circumstances is good, but deliverance from sin is infinitely greater because a relationship with Jesus, that hope-filled, life-filled, joy-filled relationship is really what we need in life. I'll ask a question here at this point. Why is Jonah mentioning the temple? Why does he mention the temple here? Well, in the Old Testament, we know that the temple was where the presence of God dwelled. It's where he would manifest his presence, communicate, relate to the people here on earth. And so though he was omnipresent, which means, you know, he's everywhere, he chose to dwell and have his presence in a special way in the temple. So God is everywhere. He chose to manifest his presence in the temple to the people of Israel. But inside the temple, so let's be a little more specific, inside the temple there was a room called the Holy of Holies. And in that room behind the curtain sat the Ark of the Covenant. And inside the Ark of the Covenant was God's manifested presence. But also in the Ark was the law. And the significance of that was was this is that if you wanted to have a relationship with the holy God, the perfect God, if you wanted to fellowship with him, you had to meet the requirements of the law. You must be holy as he is holy. And that, I mean, that's what the, that's what the law said. And, of course, that's bad news. Because following the law was an impossible standard. No one could do that. So, so, so what could they do? Well, on top of the ark sat a golden seat. 
And they called that the mercy seat. So the mercy seat sat on top of the ark. And once a year, the Israelites, or the high priest, would shed the blood of a lamb and pour the blood of the lamb over that seat. And what God was saying through that action, through the seat, through the ark, and through the temple, was that despite you Israelites breaking our covenant, our relationship, despite the fact that you don't obey the law and are not holy, I'm going to allow that blood, that blood to pay for your sins and to make you clean. That blood is going to pardon or pay for your sins. And so Jonah, there in a fish, is remembering the Lord and he's remembering the temple, the mercy seat, the holy of holies. The fact that his sins are paid for, God has made a way in that sense. And so here, in, in a, for, for us New Testament believers, in a sense he's preaching the gospel. And this is our gospel, that, that we fall short of holiness, of the glory of God. Like Jonah, remember, I am Jonah, we are Jonah. Like Jonah, we are depraved, but God is full of grace. And in the depth of that grace that covers our sin. For Jonah, it was the mercy seat. For us, of course, it's Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, who shed his innocent blood for us to take away the sins of the world. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 2 says this. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Faith in Jesus makes us clean. He has paid for our sins. And if you want to understand the gospel, if you want to to renew that relationship with Christ once more. If you're running from him and you want to return to him, running from him to running to him, we first, we need to pray. But also we need to understand that we are depraved, that we need his grace and his mercy, and that's found only in Jesus Christ. He is the author of our salvation, we're going to see later. He is the giver of our salvation. He is the keeper of our salvation. There is nothing we could do to gain salvation. It is of the Lord. So we need to know the depth of our depravity, but also we need to know the depth of God's steadfast love. We need to know the depth of God's steadfast love. Verse 8, we'll go to verse 8. Jonah says this in his prayer, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. And we're going to take a look at that word, steadfast love. It's very important. We're going to see it soon, just not quite yet. I think it's really easy to pass this verse quickly. Um, but if you, if you read a lot of scholars, a lot of commentators, they say that this is one of the key verses in the book of Jonah. And in fact, uh, you'll find it's actually the, the midpoint of Jonah as well. And this is essentially, I think, what we, what we take away from this verse. The, the gospel leads us to the reality that we all have idols that need to be exposed. Um, and I know Jonah here, so this is why I say this is an imperfect prayer. Um, because we all understand that at the end of Jonah, there's still work, into Jonah chapter 2, there's still work in Jonah's heart to be done. But, but I think here, Jonah here is contrasting himself with idolaters, right? And so we might see some of that, that still, you know, self-righteousness a little bit here as well. In fact, it was yesterday morning. I had written my entire sermon. 
And all of it was like, oh, all the great things we can take away from Jonah's sermon. And wow, this is just a great, great prayer, great, great, wonderful thing. And then I, I read it again. I'm like, oh, maybe not. <laughs> maybe actually there's, there's a lot of issues here. And I think one of them is, is that, that we can slightly see there's still a little bit of that in Jonah's heart. Because in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 22 through 23, we find actually that Jonah is an idolater. Jonah chapter 15, verses, uh, 1 Samuel 15, 22 through 23. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And this is it. And to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. So here we see rebellion looking a lot like idolatry. So Jonah here, I, I, I think as he's contrasting himself uh, to these idolaters, he needs to understand himself he is an idolater because he's in rebellion to the Most High God. And the reality is the, the sin of idolatry, it's relevant for Jonah and it's relevant for us. It just looks different. For Jonah, his idolatry was self-righteousness. Jonah believed he was morally superior. He believed he was better. And beyond that, Jonah had an idol of control. It's another reason we see him run. He wanted to control over his own path and his own life. So when God said, go, Jonah said, no. When God sent the storm, he slept. And he wanted to, to even control his own death, possibly. Where he says, hey, I'm done with this. Throw me overboard. Right, so these are idols in, in Jonah's own heart. Uh, but idols can be, of course, a number of things. Anything that we enjoy, anything that we treasure or cherish more than God, that's an idol. It can be people, places, a relationship, a possession. It can be even ourselves. We can idolize success, success in ministry. If you can't say amen, you better say ouch. That's a Vodibacum thing. Somebody else does that, but... I think it sounds good, just in case you're like, wow, that's so clever. Okay. But we can idolize these things, even ministry things we can idolize in our own hearts. And think that success in that is greater than our devotion and our love of Jesus Christ. So, so all of us will and are worshiping something. We will center our lives around something. And if God is not at the center, if the gospel is not at the center of our lives, something else always will be. And this was Israel's story in the whole Testament. And we're the same. So where do you find comfort when things go bad? What gives you your self-worth? Where do you go to find happiness? And I think these questions are important because they ultimately reveal the idols in our own hearts. They ultimately re reveal what we're trusting in. They reveal where our hope is found. And the amazing truth is that when we forsake our idols and we run back to God, Jonah says we receive the steadfast love of God. And of course that phrase steadfast love, we'll pause on it for a second, is chesed. And if you're, if you're ever wondering how to properly pronounce it, I just did. Chesed. I'll try to continue without using phlegm. It will be difficult, but I will refuse the temptation to do so. 
in case it is distracting. But it has profound meaning, however we pronounce it, all right? And, and, and hesed is, is a, it's a covenantal love. It brings together so many different things that, that, we, that we use individual words for in the English, and it brings those things together. It brings together grace, love, kindness, all into one word. And even more amazing, it, it brings together uh, this idea of it being undeserved. It's overflowing. It's never-ending. We can't earn it. We can't stop it. It's unbreakable, and it changes us from the inside out. And I know in this room, there are those of us that are running from God, and I think we need to hear this. Maybe, maybe it's a, a public sin. Everyone knows about it. Maybe it's a secret sin, and you're running from God, keeping something hidden. Whatever, whatever the case may be, we need to know that you're loved, that God's steadfast love is unending, that it's overflowing, and when we turn from those things and we go to Christ, we go to God, that love is for you. And it's unbreakable. We can't stop it. We can't earn it. It's undeserved. And it's overflowing. So if we take this all together now, and we want to renew our relationship with Christ, we want to go deeper with Christ, we need to be prayers. Prayers? 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 Prayer warriors? We need to be those that pray. Amen. Thank you, Esther. Wow. But also we need to understand our own depravity. And we need to know the steadfast love of God. Because with all these things together, verse 9 becomes easy. Verse 9 becomes easy. And it says this. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So Jonah here... In a, in a smaller sense, is repenting from running away from God. He turns to God with the promise to be thankful and to live sacrificially. He's telling God, I, I'm going to worship you. I'm going to follow you. I'm going I'm to do what you want me to do this time. And then Jonah gives this powerful declaration. And in many ways, it's the thesis of the entire Bible. If you were to ask, what's the Bible all about? You say, open up to Jonah chapter 2, verse 9. And you're like, oh, you're smart. Where would you learn that? Pastor Levi. Just kidding, I learned it from so many, yeah, okay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's really what the Bible's all about. Salvation belongs to him. It is his. Uh, there's nothing we can do to earn it, right? Which is why every day we need to go to the foot of the cross. Every day we need to understand, by myself, on my own, I'm not enough. On my own. Christ gives me hope, gives me purpose, gives me joy, gives me comfort, gives me strength, gives me salvation. Because salvation is his, it's not mine. It belongs to him. He's the giver of it. He starts it. He finishes it. It's his. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And also notice here, so he says salvation belongs to the Lord. When is Jonah vomited? By the way. If you've ever had, okay, maybe, I'm, I'm not going to go graphic. <laughs> or, you know, it's a, verse 10, it talks about vomit, all right? Um, I will say, you know, another way that this, like, whole scene is kind of dramatized and fantasized a little bit is, like, you get the scene of, like, Jonah, like, he gets spit out from this ship, uh, from this boat, and not, from ship boat, what am I talking about? From this fish, and he's, like, eh, you know, smiling as he's getting onto dry land. Uh, it's vomit. It's gross. If you ever had an experience of vomit, you know you're not thinking to yourself, wow, I wish I was Jonah. You know, you're not thinking that. 
You know, Jonah's all like, wee, I'm saved, this is so great. It's vomit, it's disgusting, it's gross. Let's keep going. So verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. And again, the, the, the author is quick to note here who is in control. Uh, just as much as, as the big fish was under the command of God when it swallowed Jonah, we, saw, we see God sending the storm. We see God eventually sending um, a worm, right? God is so in control of this story. And finally, Jonah just admits to himself, no, salvation is of the Lord. It belongs to him. So Jonah prays. He stays in the fish. Jonah talks about sacrifices and vows. He stays in the fish. Uh, Jonah talks about idolatry and how they're idolaters, and maybe he's an idolater too. He stays in the fish. What else is Jonah? He talks about seaweed. Talk about how he's at the bottom of the sea. He stays in the fish. The moment he says salvation belongs to the Lord, it's the power of God that saves. He is then vomited from the fish. Jonah, a runaway prophet, praying to God from a fish, and, and, and he being so self-righteous, God's still pursuing him. Jonah doesn't deserve it, but God is giving it. And let me just bring this to us. We need the same grace. We need the undeserving grace of Jesus Christ because we are undeserving sinners. We all rebelled against God. We're all prone to cover up all rebellion in all types of ways. And it's easy for us to rebel against God and then focus on the consequences of our sin as if we had nothing to do with it. We're prone to self-righteousness. We're prone to look at other people, other idolaters, and say, well, I'm not as bad as them. But in reality, we are all undeserving sinners, and we all need the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. And maybe there are some of us today that are running, rebelling in ways maybe other people can see, maybe other people can't see. Only you and God know, but that's, that's exactly it. God knows, God sees, God hears. He's in the fish, he's with you now, and God loves you. Yeah, he loves you with a steadfast love. If you only turn away from your sin and go toward him, that love is undeserving, it's overflowing, and it's never-ending. And there's a conversation in Matthew chapter 12 uh, between Jesus and some religious rulers. And in this conversation, it goes like this, Matthew chapter 12. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah, as does the rest of the Old Testament, points to Jesus. And really, Jesus did everything right that Jonah did wrong. Jonah ran from his enemies. Jesus runs toward them. Jonah was on mission of revenge because he hated the Ninevites. Jesus came on mission of rescue because he loved the world. Jonah was all about his own self-protection. Jesus poured out himself in self-sacrifice. Jonah bore judgment for his own sin. 
Jesus bore judgment for the sins of the world. Salvation through judgment. Except Jesus takes our judgment on himself. Are you seeking to return to the Lord today? Are you seeking his mercy and his grace? Start with prayer. Understand your depravity in the presence of a holy God and know the depths of God's steadfast love for you. I'm going to ask the, the worship team to come up. We'll close in prayer together.